0: hello hello we are back um in today's episode we are focusing on something that is very very important um today's episode we are focusing on what has been consistently happening uh against the asian american community most recently uh six asian american women were brutally murdered uh in atlanta and since the pandemic has uh began in this country uh Asian American hate crimes have been on the rise by the thousands and uh, I wanted to bring an expert on the topic, uh, Rico Shishoko. Uh He is someone who I've known for a very long time, but someone who uh, speaks the truth to power in such a brilliant and magnificent way. And I thought that it was important to make sure that we are centering uh, Asian American voices on this podcast, uh, specifically in a moment uh, of 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 just crisis, in my opinion. And so. Um, This is this is something that needs to stop. And uh, we're going to talk about it here on this podcast. So this is the black stage. Rico Shisoko uh, is here with us, ladies and gentlemen, and he is a writer, educator, activist. And, you know, I, I guess we can just add superhero on top of that, uh, <laughs> Who uh, who's received, like, an amazing fellowships from the Center of Fiction, uh, Lambda Literary, uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities. He's a board member of Kundiman, which is a national literary organization dedicated to the Asian-American uh, literature experience and group and people. Enrico uh, also lives in San Francisco, and he's an author, folks. Uh, he's the author of his first book, The Foley Artist, uh in his day job, mind you, he does have a day job, is being a a dean of a school called Urban School of San Francisco. Rico, welcome to the podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Brent. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so uh, grateful for the invite. And as you said, it's nice to be with friends. It's just like let's just chat. I know, man. You 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 abandoned us in New York, man. I guess it was a good time to
0: you know jump ship for a little while but I'm I'm happy that you're doing so well in uh in San Francisco and thank you so much for accepting this invitation to the podcast. Yeah. Uh I'm just really really grateful for your time. So, you know, the one thing about Black Stage is that we talk mm-hmm. about all the things, but in spe- but specifically, we talk about uh, the journey, right? We know that you didn't just wake up and you were this huge <laughs> success. Um, I know people want to make it seem that you were, you, you know, we, we just woke up one day and we were born successful, but there was a journey, right? And there was an experience that, you know, happened. And it, I want you to just kind of take my listeners, our listeners, the listeners of, of Blackstage um, through your journey of, of how you
1: got from point A to point B. Sure, 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 sure. And it's one of these, like, I asked you before we started talking, It's like, how long do you want me to talk? How long do you have? I'm I'm an educator like you. I'm like, we can just, I can be a sage on the stage as long as I need to. So uh, let me do the concise version of the journey. I love okay, that.
0: Okay, okay, okay.
1: You know, after I, I went to uh, Boston University uh, after BU, I spent my 20s just can we? We can't curse. I just spent you my 20s. Okay. <laughs> okay. I spent my 20s fucking around, right? I was like job to job. I was in the dot com bubble and I did some arts administration. Um, I knew I wanted to be a writer. So at that point, you know, in my 20s is really like thinking about how do I um, take myself seriously as a writer and as um, a poor kid. Uh, an immigrant kid, um, a kid who didn't have um, professional artists in my life, you know, growing growing up in Iowa as the, the child of Filipino immigrants. I didn't have a role model for how to be a professional artist or writer. So my 20s were really kind of figuring out things like MFAs that everybody knows, but I didn't know it at the time. So as I began to sort of take myself seriously as a writer, people were like, you should go to graduate school. And I was like, what is graduate school? You know, I just made it through undergrad. So that was really my 20s. And I went to um, get my MFA at Bennington uh, College for writing and literature at 30, which I think is kind of late like so for me you know I was working jobs and I had to even pay for my own well most most of us have to fund our own sort of graduate education mm-hmm. and so I was working a full time job like I was working in dot coms I was in the dot com boom in the um like late 90s and that's when I went back to grad school um after I finished grad school probably 31 32 uh for writing I wanted to go into education so I knew I had a lot of educators in my family um so um the idea of being a a college faculty member was super exciting to me and and sort of um, professional for for a kid of color, like, oh, you're gonna be a college professor even if you're an adjunct. So the MFA is an entry point into that. So you can get adjunct jobs. So I was at Boston College and that was my first teaching job. I taught creative writing, literature, Asian American studies for 10 years. So that was my thirties. And then um, I met, Well, at the time, you know, I was, uh, this is more like to go back a little bit in in undergrad, I came out um, as a gay man. So I met my first sort of serious boyfriend, like 21, 22. But because we're sort of stunted as, um, I should use the I voice, as a young gay man, we don't have a lot of role models for who are couples or how to be in a gay couple. Like, I kind of like, I think it was a hard first relationship, you know? And so my first like, teenagehood crush in my twenties with this guy became a long-term relationship. And then we went through a divorce. So actually my thirties were like this delayed adolescence this blooming into like who I would be. Yeah, it was, that's it. That's it. So like, you know, my thirties, I got my, my graduate degree. I went through a divorce, like a gay divorce, right? I, I was kind of like living it up and partying and, and also being, uh, sort of rising in my career over those 10 years um, and, and sort of uh, ingratiating myself and and becoming a part of the Boston College community. Um, but then I met my current husband at the end of my 30s. And he was, um, I met him, he was teaching at Harvard at the time and got a job at Columbia. So that's why we moved to New York. And that's when you and I met. I was moving from a job of 10 years um, as a writing professor into nonprofit independent school world. I didn't know about this K-12 world, this very elite, um, amazing education, but a whole different world, especially the New York independent school world. Right. So I, I, do you know, you know, the New York independent Mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is like the Dalton's the Trinity. Oh, I'm
0: very, I'm very familiar. You know, Uh
1: so it was really fascinating to like, you know, that's where I've been in the last you know, the second half of my educational career, the past 11 years have been, I started prep for prep, which is, you know, helping um, kids of color, the most able kids of color from like Bronx, you know, uh, uh, Harlem, uh, Queens, Brooklyn, get into these schools, right? Mm -hmm. So that was like the first three years when we met and I was working at, at teacher's college. Um, and, you know, Bren- Brennan was getting his, um, his doctorate and I, I was trying to get my doctorate while working full time. So, you know, Prep for Prep, Fieldston. And then uh, my husband and I, we were like, we want to make a move. It's kind of like your, your 40s, you get to make choices instead of choices making you. And I was like, the place I have never lived is in the West Coast. I've been in, in the East Coast for 20 years. I'm like ready. So I looked for jobs out here and I've been in, in California for the past, maybe three or four years at independent schools here. And you love it. I am never leaving California. (laughs) Really? Come on out. It's sunny. I bet, it's, I bet it snowed there today, didn't I mean, it?
0: I mean, I've been... No, it didn't snow today. Don't th- It's. It rained, but it didn't snow. <laughs> um, we, I love California. Uh, I, I've been to California, uh, you know, numerous times. Actually, it was... I went to California, I think, four or five times in 2019, Rico. Like, that was the most I've ever been to California in my life in one year. Four yeah. or five times I was flying back and forth to California. It was a lot. But, you know, I LA, definitely... I No, I actually, I went to, I went to San Francisco and Oakland, um, Mm. like two or three times. I had to go to San Diego. I, I did go to LA. I did go to LA. That was the last place I went to, um. In, in, in 2020, I think I flew to LA. So, yeah. um, oh no, not, not 2020, 2019, sorry, 2019, feels like <laughs> 2020. It's like, it's the years yeah. blend in. You know what I'm saying? I, uh,
1: it's here. This year. This yeah,
0: been it like, it's just been a very long year. It just doesn't end. It just keeps going. <laughs> um, but I'm happy that you're flourishing in, in uh, in, in California. What, what have you learned since being out there?
1: Well, There's an East Coast, West Coast difference, obviously. But, you know, before I I, I talk about that, like, I think East Coast people in terms of things like race, different identifiers, I think I might get in trouble here, but like folks on the East Coast, especially New Yorkers, just say it like it is. We know Mm -hmm. this, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, like... You can use your he and him pronouns in your your high school. You can talk about like white supremacy. (laughs) Like you could talk about these things in New York and you can talk about them like my last two years before I moved to uh, San Francisco or in LA. You can talk about it, but people, it's not a part of, of everyday conversation. You'd think it would be out here but it's, it's very different. And also the racial dynamics at the schools I've been at have been very different. Like all my friends um, at Fieldston um, were Black and Latinx, you know, mm-hmm. like, like those are the educators um, that knew me well, that, that, you know, I felt like were my, pe- my people. And there were like two or three Asian educators, right? Mm-hmm. And then I came to San Francisco and LA and it's like, all these Asians in the independent schools and it's like my people again it's it's just very different it's like you know Korean, a lot of Filipinos um and very few African American or black folks you know so it's it's a very different like kind of uh, demographic shift from east to west coast and so that that's been a change for me I don't know but you know people and and when I first came out to, to California people would be like oh yeah, I'm woke or that person's woke and I was like, why do they keep talking about being woke? <laughs> like it was almost like a badge of pride. And I was thinking, I guess the equivalent in New York, there's a question for you. Like, isn't everybody just woke? Like I was like, I, no. we don't say we're woke. do No,
0: we? I don't, I don't honestly qualifiers mean nothing to me at this point, Rico, um, because it's not what you say, it's what you do. And okay. what, if what you do does not translate to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Then I can't, sit here and define you, you define you, right? You know, as Audrey Lorde says, define yourself for yourself, right? So like, at the end of the day, that's just kind of how I see it. Um, but again, perspectives are open, people can, you know, everybody has an opinion. And and that actually l- allows me to kind of like a make a smooth transition in this conversation. Sure. sure. I, I, you know, one of the, the reasons why, um, you know, I wanted you on this podcast is because like, there is a lot of conversation happening, a, a huge public discourse happening in this country, mm-hmm. around just the the Asian American community, the Asian American experience, what does it mean mm-hmm. to be Asian? Because right now we're currently facing as a nation, the, the, the pervasive racism that has, um, been attacking the Asian American community since Asian Americans arrived to this country, but yep. really like really kind of being the story, right. Being the story, being the face, being all of these things that I think that has been a long time coming. Um, and I wanted to just kind of like talk to an expert about this because it's important. And it's important that people know, it's important that people are educated, um, for folks who are trying to make sense of it all. And then also people who are scared, right? I think that's the story that is, is, is really important because there are a lot of people who are afraid for their lives. They're afraid for their families' lives, grandparents, mothers, daughters, sisters, Yeah, brothers. Um, it's just real. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that has been so, Amazing to see um, over the years about you, Rico, is that you're so unapologetically who you no. are, right? Yeah, you yeah. are who you are. You are proud to be Asian. <laughs> you're like, nobody's yeah. going to erase me. Or like I remember, I remember one of our first conversations, you were talking about model minority. Like that was literally like one of the first conversations I had about with about race with you. Just like you kind of talking about the model minority myth. And and yeah. can we just can we just talk about that for a little bit? And just, I would love to hear your perspective and go as far and as deep and as wide as you need to go. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, thanks for thanks for the invitation. You know, I I've been doing a lot of talking about Asian Americanness lately, which is amazing. And then I check in with my friends who are Asian Americans and they're like, why is it just we're we're in the spotlight right now? You know? So it's a little bit of a grievance and a little bit of being pissed off too, right? We've been doing the work and and thank you for naming it. Like one of our first conversations was uh, model minority. So like if, if I were teaching uh, Asian American history at, at Boston College, 15 week course, we would go deep into this and we look at primary sources, right? One of the first things, even before model minority, well, this is all model minority is that, and I say this all the time to Asian American kids, we... Are, we are American first, and we have always been here. Like, that's a huge thing. I'm like, look, there's, there's waves of immigration and especially of Asian immigration, 1965, uh, mm-hmm. immigration legislation act, legalization act, but we have always been here. And so you point to the evidence for first, first evidence, uh, you know, we won't do a whole course, but like, you gotta know your history as an Asian American Filipinos who were, um, uh, on the Spanish galleons in the late 1700s, uh, jumped ship, and they ended up in Louisiana. They they started a um, you know escaped slaves started a Filipino community in Louisiana. Um, Uh, Saint Malo, and they they figured out how to dry shrimp in their their village, and those methods are still a part of um, uh, the American consciousness, American forms of production. So when people are saying like looking at at us as perpetual foreigners, model minority, all these things, it's like, look, we've been here since the beginning, (laughs) except for Native Americans. You know, we got to give to our brothers and sisters, indigenous people and, and native brothers and sisters. They are the original Americans, right? But As long as white folks have been here, Asian folks have been here, you know, and then there's all the, all the different touch points for Asian Americans in the US. Some of the other ones, you know, we have always been here is one thing. That's number one. Number two is that we've been the only race that have been um, excluded in our um, immigration laws um, and named by that, right? So it's like Asian exclusionary laws of the early 1920s. We talk about like, Transcontinental Railroad, all the Chinese workers, right? Like, here's all the uh, up with people stories, right? Like, great, great, great. But (laughs) in our laws, we were like, we'll give you a one way ticket, Chinamen, back to China. Like, it was law. We, when we, we got, um, we exhausted the labor, and and um, uh, the U S. accomplished its um, uh, building of its nation, especially on the west coast, in the fields and agricultural industry, the canneries. when they went through the Chinese labor, then they went to uh, Mexican and Filipino labor, right? When the Mexican folks, we know folks like Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, but they were in solidarity with Filipino Americans. And we have to know um, who are Filipino. um, We have to know Larry Itliong as much as we know um, uh, 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 Cesar Chavez who worked hand in hand. They were like, screw you. Like we need um, equal um, pay and we need, uh, workers' rights as well. So like there are there are places of both solidarity, places of um of uh discrimination named. Um then there you get to the 70s where it's like Black Power Movement was was um so important, and our Asian brothers and sisters stood in solidarity with Malcolm X. So, you know, one of his go-to's was Yuri Cochiano. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know Yuri. So I always like, I'm like, let's talk about Yuri and Malcolm let's talk about that you know like instead of crab mentality like we have uh you know that's a that's a product of white supremacy right to build wedges between you brennan and me rico right like who there's only so much limited pie but there's not limited pie that's a product of white supremacy so we got to talk about and tell the stories like you're an english person like me we had to tell the stories through like Yuri, through Larry, Larry Itliang, through those first Filipino sailors in the 1700s, through um, Wong, Wong Kim Ark. Sorry, I have to reread uh, Making of Asian America by Professor Erica Lee. That's a go-to text. But she was like, how many of us know Wong Kim Ark? Do you, you, you probably. Here's, here's your test. <laughs> I should have you I'm, on I'm, the I'm, spot. I'm, just, not going, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna
0: sit here and say that I'm an expert. I that I'm not an expert. I'm okay. not gonna sit here and say that I know. So the first thing that we need to do is acknowledge the things that we don't know so we can educate on the things that we should know so we can move forward. I've already learned so much um in this conversation alone. So like and you've only just started to talk. So uh, yeah. well, let me give you
1: one. Right. Can I can I give you one kim yeah. arc who one kim Ark was? So one kim arc, um, uh, we talk about things like um if you're born here, you're a US citizen, right? It's like, okay, that's that's a part of our, our thinking, but it wasn't always that way. Oh, we know. Oh, we know that. Well, yeah, for African enslaved people, right? Right. It's like, you didn't have um, any uh, benefits um, uh, and, and not even a full personhood, right? Just property. Um, Wong Kim Ark said, I was born in the US and during these, this period of Asian exclusionary laws where the US was like, we'll pay for a ticket. You're not gonna get citizenship first off and we'll pay for a ticket to, for you back to um, whatever country you came from, right? Mm-hmm. So he went um, to back to China, right? He was born here and then he took a trip to China early part of the 20th century. And when he came back, um, he was not allowed into the country. So he sued the US government. Wong Kim Ark is the person who's responsible for um, birthright citizenship. It was an Asian guy. Wow. You no, know? so wow. if you don't know your history, like I was never a history person, like as a kid. I was
0: always a history person. I was oh, always were you? History, yes, I was a history minor in, in college. I, I loved history. I've always loved history. And I think Love that it. my hunger for history is because I always knew that there was gaps in the story. Yes. There were gaps yes. in the story, you know, and again, from from the perspective of my lens of saying like, okay, in the history books, there's this one little paragraph about African Americans, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you get the we were slaves. Martin Luther King mm-hmm. gave the speech, and now mm-hmm. the kids of today say Barack Obama became president, right? <laughs> that's the par- that's the paragraph <laughs> of like you know you know of Black history that you get, um, and then also you, you know and then the repetitive stories of like you know you know Rosa Parks like uh, the I have a dream speech. And I'm just like, there has to be more. There has to be more. And the deeper you go into the history, the more you understand like, oh, like the person who was literally right next to Malcolm X when he died was hovering over Malcolm X was Yuri, you yes. know, was Yuri, yes. you know?
1: So it's just like, you know, you- He's you, cradling him. She was caring for him you, in the you, moment. You, you
0: get into it and it's just like, wow, wow. You know, what, 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 what else are we missing? Um, and so, yeah, so history has always been my thing. And I think history is a part of storytelling too, right? Like you have to tell stories in order to translate culture, right? And in okay. order to translate culture, you have to understand what happened before. So that's, yes. that's my thought on
1: that. Yes. There's a saying in um, in Tagalog, which is uh, Filipino, and I'm, I'm gonna butcher it because I, I try not to go off on tangents too much, but here's a little tangent is that uh, my parents who are immigrants, spoke to me in Tagalog, but I was supposed to respond to them in English. So a lot of us who are second generation, we know the language in our ears, but we can't speak it, right? Because we were told to speak English and that's the language at school, you know, the home school we've done, we've done the third space kind of stuff. But um, thinking about a common Tagalog saying, which is, Kung hindi mo alam nang kakara uan, my brother's gonna kill me. Um, then you do not know where you're going. So if you don't know where you're going, coming from, then you do not know where you're going. And I love that very phrase. True. It's very I true. I love that phrase too. I didn't get to talking about model well, minority, but there's so much. There's so there's much. So much. There, there's
0: so much. And and I think that, you know, again, like, I love this idea of like, well, not I love this idea, but the framing mm-hmm. around like crabs in a barrel and like, you know, here we are having a conversation around like the Asian American experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Really, what it in and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it really feels like one of the first major times nationally we are having this open dialogue mm-hmm. about what does it mean to be mm-hmm. Asian-American, right? And what mm-hmm. does it mean mm-hmm. to lack representation? Or what does it mean to have this pressure of being perfect or to be silent mm-hmm. um, in a big way, in a big way? And, and I guess my question for you, Rico, is why does it always take for tragedy to happen consistently and constantly for people to be seen? For people to be seen and to be to be validated as human or to be um, acknowledged in some way. Why why is there such a disconnect with that? And yeah. what does it mean to be an Asian American that has to like reckon with, with the reckoning that America is continuously having around race?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, like I want to take it in so many directions. And I, and I love the question. I mean, one part of your time. I mean, I'm
0: in mean, the passenger seat. You're in the driver's seat, Rico. You drive it wherever. No, you, you, better, go. you
1: better, We better, co-drive, okay, you know? we'll co-drive, we better we'll co-drive. We'll co-drive. We'll co-drive. <laughs> one, one side of the, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, you think about the invisibility of Asian Americans, you think about model minority myth and you got to add the myth to the model minority part. You think about um, stereotypes and cultural familial values of like um, being uh, good Asians, being uh, uh, obedient, right? Um, There's so many historical reasons for all these things. Um, I would talk about the invisibility of Asian Americans, which I think gets first and foremost to your question um, by saying a couple of things. One is that Stop AAPI Hate, which has been working for the past year, has reported more than 3000 incidents of anti-Asian hate since COVID started. That's more than 3,000, do- not, not the unreported ones, the documented incidents since 2020, like last year when this started, 3,000. So where has been the media coverage? Like, what the hell? Like, you know, there's there's research, there's data, like what, what the hell is going on, right? We know, um, I'm gonna call out the former president, right? And his um, incendiary language of, Coronavirus, China flu, Kong flu, right? Anti-Asian like uh, sentiment was from the top, right? So the people who are who are feeling emboldened right now, we're feeling it now as a result of a year of you know four years of just constant like anti-Asianness, right? Muslim ban. Back to we we don't need to relive those those dark days, right? But the former president started these ideas of um, white supremacy, I'm going to name it, anti asianness ness anti-blackness, right? So when that's verified from the person in charge that we're listening to, it makes sense that people are going to go to on January 6th. It makes sense that somebody's going to feel like Asians and Chinese are responsible for the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Back to the side of the the positionality side for Asian Americans, you know, we want to be good Americans. You know, there's historical reasons, like car- Japanese American incarceration, right? There's reasons of um, the after the immigration laws were opened in 1965 that the, the people who came over, Asians, were um, professionals. So we wanted to assimilate. We wanted to be good model uh, model citizens, but the actual model minority in terms of uh, income levels. In, in terms of uh, education levels for Asians, that was highlighted as a result of white supremacy. You know, mm-hmm. because there are just you have to disaggregate the data for Asian Americans. There are there are poor and uneducated Hmong, Laotian. You know, so you can't essentialize all Asian Americans. Just like you couldn't, you know, I can't say that my Haitian friend is the same as my African American friend, as the same as my Nigerian friend. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I've learned that from my friends who are African and African-American. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Asian-Americans are, are a monolith and we don't disaggregate it. And that contributes to the model minority. So if this, you know, I'm telling you stuff and we're talking about stuff. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be getting on my high horse, <laughs> but, but, you know, if Asians are successful, why are African-Americans, you know, and that perpetuates stereotypes of laziness. Like, come on. Like we got, we got to stop that. It's all just in favor of white supremacy. Wow. Uh, You know, I, um, I tweeted out a couple of days (laughs) ago. Uh, do you have Twitter Rico? (laughs) My Twitter blew up and I'm too old to figure out how to get my password. Your your Twitter blew up. What do you mean it blew up? (laughs) Like I couldn't, I don't know. I got kicked off or something and I, (laughs)
0: Oh Lord. Okay. All right. Can you so, Can you okay. Help uh, me, young one. Oh God, Rico, please. Uh, Rico, and I know you have to call on me young. You look like you about twenty-five, sir. So you've looked the same for about twenty years. So, but we'll talk about that another time offline. I turned
1: fifty. I'm
0: turning 50. Uh, yeah. Look. You look. No, not crack. No crack. No. Just everything's just you know. Beige maybe, don't age. Beige, you know? <laughs> Beige. don't age. Okay. All right. Dude. Okay, sir. Um. So. Uh, I I tweeted recently, um, in response to like, kind of the events that were kind of going on, um, one of my favorite spoken word pieces, and I know that you, you do spoken word, you do poetry, um, and it was something that I actually used when I was teaching, um, at Columbia, uh, media literacy and race, and, uh, it was a, a spoken word that was, um, a, a part of button poetry, are you familiar with them? Uh, button poetry, yeah, so Alex Dane, um, Alex Dane is his name, he, uh, uh, he wrote this uh this poem that was or th- did the spoken word that was called what kind of asian are you right and he just goes into all this detail around like you know how like all these different stereotypes um were stripping him of his culture stripping him of who he was and stripping him of of, of who he could be because you were continuously per- perpetuating these things on top of him and and i just thought it was so powerful but it was also, it's also painful to hear and I've heard it so many times um mm. because it, it's like you know why do people why are people so hateful Rico like mm-hmm. what makes you hate someone so much mm-hmm. that you can go out into the streets and just randomly attack someone in the middle of a global pandemic and not and, and, and again like I think I know we we're, it's a broad range of victims who have been attacked but specifically yeah. the older folks you know what I mean the elders and you're just break your like, heart it's it's horrible you know and i was watching the video of the 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 asian woman i think I believe she was uh 75 years old yeah, American. Um, and, she, and she beat that man down you know what i mean and <laughs> you i do I, not I, mess with asian aunties you know and i was i was like but like yes and it's like yo she beat him down everybody was like yeah you beat that man down but at the same time rico you see her face blacked out yeah you yeah. know yeah. and i'm like what this is someone's grandmother man yeah. like why would you, you know, so I, I, I mean, again, very familiar with racism, very familiar with hate, but as it, as it pertains to um, the Asian American community yeah. and, and how, and, and how you can like literally, you know, strip someone's culture and, yeah. and disempower them in such a way. Do you have any
1: thoughts around that? Yeah, well, I know that's a rhetorical question, but I always have a lot of thoughts. Uh, I mean... I, thank you for saying, like, how, you know, I can, we can joke amongst our own folks, right? So I can joke and make jokes around Asians that I can't around non-Asians. Mm-hmm. I can make jokes around queer folks that I don't make around other, you know, straight mm-hmm. folks or, or, you know, um, non-queer folks. So I, I love that you were sort of saying the heartbreak that's, that's there. You know, why are folks... Let's say you're, you're you hate Asians for, you know, it's an uh, unconscious bias and you don't know mm-hmm. why. But <laughs> why would you go after 89-year-old Chinese grandmas, you know, going to get there to the farmers market and going home, you know? Right. Why would you push a man in Oakland, in Oakland's Chinatown, and then, you know, not just to rob them, but to see them flying through the air on video? And and it, it, it brings a lot of emotions up for me right now as we're talking, you know, the, the, and, and that the the result of the, the pushing is not just like to, you know, rob them and take the wallet or to express your um, your anti-Asian hate and, and your fear of COVID, but that that person dies, you know? Right. So it's not passes away. That person dies. That's somebody's grandpa or grandma. <laughs> That's somebody's. So it, it's heartbreaking and yet, you know, the latest I read about um, that uh, Asian auntie is the grandson raised over a million dollars, and she's like, "Give it back to the Asian American community." Did you see that? She's I didn't like, see that. She's like, "We got to fight racism." Like her face. No, she she's she is literally.
0: No, she was out here being a revolutionary. She was like, "I'm gonna beat you down, and I'm going to live to speak about it, and we're going to keep it moving." And like, she was going off. She was still going off. God was in a stretcher and everything. <laughs> She was like, I wish I wish I was, I wish somebody could tell me what she was saying because she was just going yeah. off. And, and I was just so, you know, thankful that she survived. Thankful yeah. that she survived, but not everyone is going to be that lucky. And you know she's
1: fierce and now, you know, folks have seen it and folks have donated individually to her. And she's like, it's not me. It's a kinship model of the community. Yeah. You know. It's yeah. like it's not about me and the pain that I experience. It's the pain of our our community. So yeah. she told her grandson. Her grandson was like, "We need to pay for some, you know, medical expenses." She's like, "Give that million dollars. We're gonna pick some organizations." It's like that's insane. That's yeah. insane, and it's beautiful yeah. at the same time.
0: Yeah, I, I remember there was this uh this uh, magazine cover that um, that was discussing how. America loves Black culture, but it does not love Black people. Mm -hmm. And I would like to say in this moment of time, um, America loves Asian culture, but they Mm -hmm. do not love Asian people. When Mm -hmm. I think about the food, when I think about the culture, the clothes, the impact, you know what I mean? I mean, like, there's just no denying some of these things. You know I mean? There's just no denying some of these. When you think about the amount of tourism, you know, let's just take it, let's make, make it global for a second. The amount of tourism that mm-hmm. China gets from Americans a year, going to the Great Wall, going mm-hmm. to the, the Forbidden City, and going to Japan, eating the food, getting the experience, you know what I mean? Like, the mm-hmm. obsession with dressing up like a geisha girl. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like... All of those things, you know? And then the movies, right? Mulan, Mm -hmm. Rico. (laughs) <laughs> um memoir <laughs> memoirs of, of a geisha. A geisha uh, yeah. uh, the last samurai. You know, yeah. I mean like these these things that we consume, right? Yeah. Like yeah. like we consume constantly and, and, and consistently. We want to celebrate Jackie Chan for being able to do okay. karate real well, but yet when we are looking at Congress and we're looking at Asian Americans leading, we have a problem with it, right? Um, we agree. have an issue, we have an issue with it, yeah. you know. Um, or we
1: consume hip-hop culture and yet when George Floyd is you know kneeled upon and 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 for however many it's escaping me for how many minutes
0: eight minutes and I think 46 45 seconds
1: yeah why are we questioning it like it's literally on video it's not just uh black culture it's not just black friends terrible thing to say right it's um I love that you're saying like why don't we love the people?
0: <laughs> yeah. Why don't we love it's, our people? It's the, it's the strangest thing. It's this. I just cannot. I don't. I don't know. And maybe we can really think about. I mean, because I'm really actually trying to think about this now because it's like we love, we love the culture, not we, but people more broadly. Mainstream love culture, whatever you want. and I and I have argument around the mainstream because what is mainstream mm. at this point? Oh, you know, okay. I mean? what is the mainstream? Okay. Who is the mainstream? You know. Mm. Um, if you were to talk to a guest to the podcast, Imani, who's the founder of CultureCon, she always says we are the culture. <laughs> you know what I mean? We are. We are. We are. We are the mainstream, you know. <laughs> um, so in the words of her, I'm like, who is what is mainstream? Who is defining mainstream? Right. But, you know, it's just like where where do you think. We went wrong, Rico, yeah. when it, yeah. as it pertains to um, Asians in this country and how we have consumed so much and absorbed mm-hmm. so much, but yet we do not want to acknowledge the contributions and the humanity of folks. And I didn't mention this, but let's just, since you're in San Francisco, acknowledge the tech companies yeah. that have, okay. So just, just yeah. want to put that out there too. Yeah.
1: You know, thinking about, I'm so, I'm so, perseverating a little bit on mainstream, you know? Because I think, I don't know what uh, which scholar it was, it was Red Pedagogy, it's a, um, um, a Native American scholar. And she introduced me to the idea of white stream. And I was like, white stream culture, that's it. It's not mainstream culture, it's white stream culture in the service of whiteness, right? And to me, that's, that's more accurate and more um, pinpointing um, what we're talking about. Um, there are a couple of things I'm thinking about. One is the term asian Americanness, and the other is narrative paucity. Like Viet Tan Nguyen talks about um, we need narrative plenitude. So media representations, if there's only one Kelly Tran in Star Wars, she has to be model minority or she has to be perfect, right? We can't have a messy Asian on screen, right? <laughs> Just like, so there's not enough narrative plenitude for people of different races, of different ethnicities, of different sexualities, of different abilities, any of the big eight social identifiers, right? If there's more narrative plenitude, then we can have the spectrum of messiness, of, of MLKs and radical mlks that aren't being represented you know like we can have so many different representations if there's only more and again i i I name it i go back to white supremacy and white supremacist culture right in order for white supremacist culture to exist then it has to be stratified it has to be crab mentality like for me to be on black stage is for you to say I want to offer space and time to talk about Asian Americanness, right? And this is obviously not a criticism. It's obviously praise and, and uh give yourself a pat the back, Brendan. Like I appreciate that you're given some space and time to talking about Asian Americanness. Right. Um, I think in our culture, we just it doesn't even go to small things like microaggressions. Like it doesn't even go to like all Asians look alike, right? It's bigger than that. It's because of our wars, right? Our wars in China, in Korea and in Vietnam, right? Those are the three Asian groups that that we think are only those Asian groups are Asian, right? But there's more than 40 ethnicities, right? We think about um, things like just the term of Asian American. Like we had to come together as Filipino uh, students at Berkeley, Chinese students at Berkeley, um, uh, Japanese students at Berkeley, and uh, UC uh, Santa Barbara, um, uh, as Hmong students, to form the term Asian American. It's relatively new, it's only since the 70s, and it's expressly political to stand in solidarity with each other. So, you know, you do a little bit of like, it's like it wasn't always Asian American, it was like, um, uh, for Filipinos or just Filipinos and with a P right. So expressly political for political power. Right. And so now, you know, over the years, it's like LGBTQIA, there's like so many acronyms and they're all valid, but they're all kind of fluid and amorphous. So now people in the Asian American community talk about it. Like, is it even a viable term? Asian American, right? What about our Desi friends? Right. So I've learned a lot from, my friend Nantara, who talks to me about being Daisy, And I'm like, I don't know the the difference, right? As an Asian culture, um, a new friend Persis, who is Iranian, talks to me about how Iranians are part of the Asian community, right? So even the term, the term was useful and came together and it was political purposes. And then is it still useful now? So if we can't even get our act together, how are we going to represent ourselves to white stream culture? Mm-hmm. And And then visibility, like, there's so there's so many reasons and so many people who understand this better than I do. I think about how um, putting your head down and not going to a Black Lives Matter protest is better for Asian American families. Like, you know, like you should, you know, I've had conversations with family members, like, why are you going there, you know, right? So that's that's, to me, that's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. But again, that's in service of white supremacy, right? For in order for my people to get ahead we cannot stand in solidarity with African American folks, like they were in the wrong place, at the wrong time, right? So there's not a looking at systems and structures, and that contributes to like when people say, like even amongst us as Asian Americans, like don't raise your voice, you know, don't, don't just kind of go with the flow, right? So partly it's being put on and,
0: us. in to we yeah. go, that is something that's trained. Is that something that is like presented? You know, because I've heard mm-hmm. this before, and I'm asking mm-hmm. you as as someone. Yeah. You know who's lived this this experience is that something that is true like that you yeah, were- for me it was to put your head down to be quiet to not say really and how yeah. did you, did you feel like you were breaking out of that rico like what oh what-
1: yeah it's been oh. unlearning i mean i don't know if this has been your experience it's been unlearning as i say this now in 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 current uh, in parts of my professional life right where i have senior roles and even at the senior leadership table I've felt nervous about expressing myself. And it's like, where does that come from? It's it's almost, you know, who knows if we we can psychoanalyze or where that comes from, if it is cultural or if it's individual to Rico. But there is an anxiety about raising your voice as an Asian American. And, and I talked to my friends who are Asian American and we're like, how can we be 30s and 40s as professionals and, and how much knowledge we have to just kind of, be nervous about speaking up in a room. And, and that's naming PWIs, predominantly white spaces and predominantly white institutions. At TC, there were times where I would have to like, you know, take three bullet points on my piece of paper so I knew my points before I spoke, <laughs> right? Because if I if I go off like I usually do, and, and it got easier over the, you, you were with me in several years of classes, but then I was like, I got something to say. <laughs> Like, you know, I got something to say. But in the beginning, we always, again, I don't want to speak of Asians as a monolith. I'll use the I voice. I still experience times where I want to speak as articulately as possible. I want to represent as well as possible. I don't want to be the only Asian American in the room, like, you know, spouting off. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah.
0: But here's the thing. I understand that because I won't sit here and say that I was trained to be silent or trained to, to be quiet or put my head down. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But there is that pressure of wanting to get it right, to be perfect, right? right? That I have experienced as a black man in predominantly white spaces that just wants to get it right because I know I'm the only one in the room. And I know being the only one in the room, you represent everyone, even though no one is in the room. (laughs) And so, What
1: happens if you make a mistake or if I make a mistake? It's not just my individual human mistake. It's like this body I'm walking around in. It's that body you're walking around in, right? For like 99% of the time, you know what, what you're talking about. And then one time you ask a question and it's like, oh man, Rico didn't know, like, you know, he didn't know what he was talking about. It's like, that's not representative of all Asians.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And it's, and it's, and, and I love the fact that you keep going back to, we're not all a monolith. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same lived experiences, but there is a, 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 a connection. There's a mm-hmm. connection between all of us, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, within the Asian community that we experience, that people experience in general. Do you feel um, that
1: in the Black community?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I will sit here and say I might not, I might not identify in Certain things ideologically, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are certain differences. You know, there there are Black Democrats, there are Black Republicans. There <laughs> yeah, are yeah. there are you know, I mean, there's just a range. You know, there's, there is yeah. there is very there is the African diaspora, if you will, right? There are Afro-Asians, there are Afro-Latinos, there are African Americans, there are Africans in Africa who come to America. I mean, there is just such a broad experience, and that was something that I learned in, in college, going to mm-hmm. a historically Black college. Yeah. Um, But, you know, one of the things that I will say is that um, you, you, there, there is just, there is a natural connection that I Mm -hmm. can't put my finger on that when someone who looks like me comes into the Mm -hmm. room, even Mm -hmm. if we don't see eye to eye, we understand. Yeah. We understand. And I, and, and, and again, like not trying to put any of that on you, but For me, from my perspective, it's just like, there is a, that you get it to a certain extent, to a certain extent, it's there. I don't really know how to kind of put more color onto that or illustrate it.
1: (laughs) Well, you know what frustrates me where I get, where I get kind of pissed off at, at at myself and other folks is when we don't do the knot. like I've been, I've been, you know, as as an Asian American, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like over the years, and it's like, I want to acknowledge my black and brown brothers and sisters and non-binary folks you know and it's take it's taken me learning to do that it's it's taken me like humility cultural humility to understand the black experience And not that i i i know it but to listen deeply about ways that i'm being anti-black right and that's i think what i would hope that other people would recognize like Asian Americans who are really angry right now, who are not submissive, who are not in tears. Like I have friends who are pissed off right now and people keep asking if they're okay. And they're like, no, I'm pissed off. (laughs) Like, but they actually aren't saying that to the people who are asking them of their friends. They're saying it to other Asians. And it's like that it's so complicated. There's so many layers, right? Wow. Wow.
0: Wow. No, I, I, you know, everyone's uh, you know, they're again Twitter. You know, check on your <laughs> Asian friends. Check on your yeah. friends. They're not okay. You know, check on. You know, do this. And I remember again, summer of twenty twenty, George Floyd happening, yeah. George Taylor happening. Everyone and their mother, especially those outside of um the the black experience, were like, Brennan, are you okay? Is everything all mm-hmm. right? Is there anything that I can do? And in su- in some ways, it's helpful. It's like, oh, you care. Yeah. Um, and then other ways it's like, leave me alone.
1: <laughs> Go do your work. Go talk to other you white
0: know, people. You know, exactly. Go don't talk, talk to other Asian people. Yeah. Don't, talk, don't talk to me. Yeah. Talk to whoever is in your core group or your family or that racist grandma yeah. that you keep up in the attic and yeah. talk to them about why they're problematic and yeah. why they need to unlearn certain things and what they need to be reading. Yep. Um, and, and I think that that just is
1: Google searching. You do not oh have my to God. read. There's I mean like people, Google search, you know, search. you don't
0: have to go to the library, just Google, <laughs> like see what pops up, you know, and begin there, you know, yep. and try to stay away from conspiracy theories. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know, it's intense. It's, it's, saying to me Rico it's it's, you know but here we are um and and I want to ask you just to be clear I have enjoyed this conversation I've loved this Mm -hmm. conversation and I'm so happy that I got a chance to do it with you um I
1: am curious and I know this is moving to the end I can tell structurally but Brendan I also wanted to come back and talk about intersectionality and queerness because that's something that we haven't talked about
0: Let's talk about it. And this no. is again like we're co-drivers. Let's talk no, about No, no,
1: no. I'm not trying to divert. No, 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 it's no, no. So complicated and, 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 because you know what it's like when you only isolate one of your identities. And it's like, yes, I'm a proud Asian person, but I also like exist within a white gay male queer culture. You know?
0: Let's talk about that.
1: <laughs> no, how much time? We don't have enough time for we this. Have,
0: time. No, we do have to, oh no, sir. Oh no, you don't sit here and reroute <laughs> the, the, the podcast and, and not wanna talk about something. So I do wanna talk to you about that because again, wow. it is it is who you are, right? So yeah. you identify, and to be clear, um, pronouns are he, him, his, yeah. uh, and you identify as both Asian, Filipino, male, and yeah. gay. You are yeah. currently married to the love of your life. You have a cute dog, by the way. Yes, um, thank I you. love seeing pictures of oh. one on Instagram. Um, but talk to me about that. Talk to me about that experience.
1: Yeah, you know, I. It's hard because, in a, in a practical way, there are things like, um, like work life. You know, I want to support the students, right? So, do I want to be a faculty advisor for our queer student alliance, queer straight alliance? Yes, I do. Do I want to also be in an Asian Pacific Islander affinity group meeting? Yes, I do. So by the sort of practices and the construction, I have to choose. But the way I move about in the world is like when I'm in an Asian American space, I'm still a gay man. I'm still a cisgender person, right? When I am in a queer space, like I look around the room and there's a lot of white folks and it's mostly men. you know, it's not, it's not women, it's not non-binary people, it's mostly white gay men, and, and white gay men set the agenda. Well, I think about things like, okay, HRC, human rights, uh, human rights, Rights committee, whatever it is, the largest, you know, political action group for queer folks, right? Actually, it's probably not even queer folks, it's probably gay and lesbian folks, right? Um, HRC um, has, since it started, like, a white gay male agenda they've done like committees and lip service for people of color for trans people for um non-binary people but the agenda and what you look okay what's the big thing for for gay folks in terms of um how the needle has moved for the country we have gay marriage right That's a choice to kind of say, we're going to hang our hat on gay marriage because that appeals to the white middle-class. Like we can understand if my um, sister wants to marry her girlfriend, right? But are we fighting and are we putting at the top of our political platform, transgender, folks of color who are beaten and killed at rates that that should be shocking and, and angering and create outrage you know i think about the james baldwin quote like i always go to this one to be a black man in america is to be in a constant state of rage and it's like like i i am not a black man but i feel like that as an asian american queer person like i'm just always pissed off but over the years i've learned that that's not gonna um uh suit my needs and what i'm trying to do in the long long term Right. So I have to use my anger strategically. Just like what we we're talking about with, with uh, you know, we're talking about queerness and 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 gay white men setting the agenda. It's palatable. It's palatable to have um <laughs> same-sex marriage. You know, it's not necessarily palatable to care for folks who have been murdered um, because they're just being and living as trans people of color. You know. So that that frustrates me and and i move in those spaces you know the this is a again like there's there's so many tangents like in in gay culture like it's been many years it's been a decade because i'm old brandon but like on the on the websites on the dating apps you know they, they say things like uh no femmes no fats no asians like what is that about you know like it's just named that the anti-asianness and the gay community is so disgusting you know so i i just i worry that that we are parceling out parts of our identities to talk about at certain times and we're not thinking about kimberly Cren- Crenshaw, and we don't have an understanding of intersectionality and so that basic education and foundational level um of dei work is oftentimes where i'm i'm trying to level set like whenever i'm talking to a group i'm like do we know what implicit bias is? Do we know what DEI is? Do we know? Do, so it's kind of like interesting how we can't get to intersectionality because that's like conversation four or five. Wow.
0: Rico, tell me this, when you, when you think about, um, this, this framing of intersectionality, yeah. within, especially as it pertains to race and, and sexuality, yeah. um, I'm fascinated with some of the things that you've said, but in particular, I'm curious something that you haven't mentioned yet: um, the 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 fetishing of, of Fetish Asian bodies, yeah, of of Asian uh, of yeah. Asian bodies. Yeah. And yeah. as someone who is in an interracial marriage, um, yeah. you know, and is in predominantly white male spaces, you know, I'm curious to how you have navigated that tension that probably you feel from like your Asian brothers and sisters, but also from the other side of like being in these predominantly white spaces with your white husband, like, how does that feel? What has that experience been and how, how do you kind of like keep the center maintain? I
1: I love the way you're framing it. You know, I, I have in my pocket, what i think is a funny story of course i'm I'm like telling dad jokes now at this age but i think it's a funny story about me and my white husband but i also want to center go into your question of the fetish fetishization it's a hard word fetish, fetishization that's why
0: i said misogyny. I, I can't. I was like, I'm not yeah i was like i'm not gonna butcher that word but you know what misogyny saying. let's
1: just talk about the misogyny of uh and the hypersexualization, that one's a super important part of of, of being an Asian woman and existing in uh white stream America, right? Like I feel like we're we're in our doctoral world now, but the hypersexualization for Asian women is so is so much more important to me right now in this moment, right? When all that happened last week and six Asian women were killed, right? Um, it immediately the, the media narratives went immediately to what the the killers, like he was a tempted. What was he, he had a sex addict and he was tempted and it was almost in the same day. I learned of the, of the shootings. First off, the, the night before I had heard Atlanta shootings and, you know, I was sad and it hurt my heart. And, and I, you know, I went to bed and in the morning I got all the texts. Are you okay? Are you okay? Okay. I was like, what's going on? And then I learned it was six Asian women. Then you learn it's Young's massage parlor. You learn about the assumptions people are making about, um, Asian women as sex workers. Like, I still don't know if they are or not, are not sex workers. And I have feelings on how we talk about that. But again, you got to look at it, let's not make it a historical, let's make it historical. Let's talk about um, how these three major wars, US wars in Asian countries, what were the role of Asian women, they were to be sex workers for the white um, soldiers, right. The hyper-sexualization, the the misogyny, the fetishization of Asian women, it has a long history. Like (laughs) you you look at, at, um, I think it's Mina Loy, don't quote me on this one, last name is L-O-Y. She was one of the first um, Asian women who was literally put on a stage at the beginning of the 20th century, where um, it was, I think it was part of P.T. Barnum's and it was just like pay to her and she had like finery and, and Oriental vases and she was, Brought around the country, and her name was Mina Loy. So it's like a Chinese woman was put on display, and that was um, America. And I'm doing air quotes, which I hate, but like America's introduction to the Orient. Right. So it was always hypersexualization and uh, objectification. Um, in more recent media, like everybody kind of talks about this, so um, I don't want to belabor the point. But you know, Asian American women were either dragon ladies or um, uh, uh, prostitutes, right? Just do any search of Hollywood movies from 50s to the 2000s, right? The representations of Asian women um, uh, were as dragon ladies, like to be fierce and like, will kill you, you know? Or um, you can use them as objects, as, as sexual objects. So it's reinforced by the media. It's historical from um, um, uh, the American wars in Asia. It's just like, where's the voice um, of Asian women? Mm, 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 mm. Can we talk Can we talk just for a minute or two about what happened in Atlanta? Because yeah, like, no, you, sure. you are more of a media expert than I am. Yeah. You know? The way it un- unfolded where that sheriff in Cherokee County was the spokesperson and he said it was a bad day. And he started to humanize that white man who shot six Asian women. It's like, like Chanel Miller is doing really good work around this, like visual narratives around this, where it breaks my heart because all the narratives are about him and his white experience and how he was tempted by the exotic Asian women. And they were the ones who tempted him. So if he has to get rid of his sex addiction, he has to just kill these Asian women. It's like, that's not a big leap. (laughs) Is it? It's not a big leap to say that that's, what you know we- when
0: i when i heard that rico it it took me back to um the stanford university
1: prison experiment
0: not prison experiment oh. uh, rape uh, uh mm-hmm. was it stanford yeah, that's
1: chanel miller that's chanel miller
0: chanel miller, chanel miller? Chanel miller. okay um mm-hmm. and the experience of the judge saying that his life is already ruined. We only want to give him like two or three months or however many, whatever it was, right? And there was this this idea of the, you know, like, oh, this poor young white boy, um, and his his poor life is just ruined and he doesn't need to go through anymore, not to mention that he like viciously raped this young woman. Asian, uh,
1: young Asian woman.
0: She young Asian woman. Yeah. Yeah. And that's left out of the narrative. And I, I you know, for the life of me, Rico, I I, you know, again, it's it goes it goes back to our earlier part of the conversation of like, we love Asian culture. Mm. We don't mm. love Asian people. If mm. you can't center the humanity of the person, mm. right, but you can consume the culture, right? Then then that's what it is, right? You went to this spa that is being uh, that is again making assumptions, have not done my diligence as far as like. Mm. Doing the work of who owns this spa but let's just say for example it is asian owned it is an it asian, is asian owned
1: it is she an was asian one of the one who was killed yeah
0: she was an it was an asian run business that was offering very specific services mm-hmm. you literally bypass all of that the business the humanity the leadership the everything and it's just like oh this person had a sex addiction and oh my gosh it was a really bad day for him not to mention that six people, six Asian women were killed and, you know, thinking about the families, thinking about the people they left behind, you know, and, and and I, I find myself trying to make sense of something that does not make sense. And so Mm -hmm. what I won't do is take up too much space, trying to make sense of something that does not make sense. I think Mm -hmm. the, the piece that we have to do, especially those who are in conversation Um, with our Asian brothers and sisters um, in listening, listening to what um, you all have to say about this experience is that do not try to make something make sense. That is not something that you would ever make sense within your own household. Right. Uh Huh. So that, that is, that is, that is my, that is my piece of the pie when I, when I, when I look at these stories and when I see things that are happening, but yeah. I also want to say that, um, you know, things got to change, man. Things, yeah. things, things have to change and they have to change in a big way. Um, and, and, and I think that it begins with doing the work of where does hate stem from in this country. Jane Elliott always talks about how racism is a disease. Racism is a disease. And it is a disease that just like we catch coronavirus, we catch racism. And how do you, and how do you raise, how do you, how do you get rid of it? You have to vaccinate yourself and you vaccinate yourself, Rico, with knowledge. You vaccinate yourself with understanding and humanity and humility. You vaccinate yourself with surrounding yourself with, 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 with facts. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, people aren't born to hate anyone. You're not born to hate me. I'm not born to hate you, but like some way, somehow hate just continues to happen in this country and in this world um but not to derail us rico this is your show back it's to you <laughs> not, it's, it's not it's we're, not we're
1: co-driving
0: right it's <laughs> kind of those little All right. we're, gonna be, we're, we're gonna keep we're gonna keep co-driving we're gonna keep co- co-driving. i'm like
1: stop no you stop <laughs> but yeah, yeah
0: I, I i really do appreciate you you focusing and leaning into specifically what happened to atlanta i really appreciate how yeah. you you focus in 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 how you know Asian women have been hypersexualized, um, and I, I appreciate how you touched on the misogyny and the experiences that you've had navigating this. And I do want to ask you, Rico, where do we go from here?
1: Mm, mm. Where do we
0: go from here? Where do mm. we go from here?
1: Yeah, the look. I, I end up teaching a lot and talking to a lot of young people, and and so you know in their um, and they're burgeoning critical consciousness. I'm a a Frarian. I believe education is all about critical consciousness. (laughs) We can talk about calculus and writing a good literary essay, but it's really for me as an educator, I I believe in it wholeheartedly. Like we're we're, um, helping kids who co-create knowledge to tell us about um, what ways they're they're building their consciousness. I talk because I'll do like an ethnic studies course. This uh, at the last school I was at, I did a year-long one, and we did um, indigenous uh, people's history. We did um, uh, uh, African and Latinx people's history. You know, we talked about um, the prison industrial complex. Like, and it can weigh on them. And so their their question of where do we go from here? The only place I can I can keep doing the work. And I don't know if this is, is, is where where you sit and stand as well. Um, it, it's the bell hooks. Like we have to have a pedagogy of love, right? We gotta have a pedagogy of love. We gotta have a pedagogy of hope, right? Um, if we don't, then we learn and we, we we have the knowledge and then we just wanna give up or we walk around always angry. <laughs> like I feel like I, I, the reason I, um, I find hope and, and, and sort of finding my calling is in education. So if we can get in and we can help educators, K-6 educators, pre-K-6 educators to say, we, let's, let's, uh, we were talking, we, we grew up in a colorblind society. We were taught, taught, taught not to talk about race. Are we going to perpetuate that and reinforce that with the first graders who research shows already have an observation of race, right? That's our own work to do. And so like, there's a really important place for teacher education. There's an important place for um, uh, racial literacy in K through 12 schools. To me that that's helpful, but it's also saying to our students who are learning it, like, um, uh, again, it's the MLK. It's the, uh, I'm going to get this one screwed up, but I think I have it pretty close. It's like the uh, ARC. The moral arc of justice is long. No, the moral arc is long, but it bends towards justice. So, like, you know, we learn about it, we're, we're working, we're doing the work, um, and we move the needle a little bit. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh,
0: last question for you, Rico. Um, <laughs> last question for you. Uh, You know, I always end this podcast in season two with um, a reflection point. Uh, We've been doing Mm -hmm. a lot of reflection in in this conversation, but as it pertains specifically to you, if you were to look back 30 years ago uh, and see young Rico uh, out in those streets doing the thing, learning, growing, figuring it out, um, what advice would you give him? And what would you say?
1: (laughs) That's a good closing question you have for your podcast. That's a, that's an unanswerable one and a cringy one. <laughs> is that is that the point of this is to make it a cringy one? No, it's
0: supposed to feel it's supposed to feel good. When you when you see that that young guy in your head yeah. Yeah. You know, from 30, 35 years ago, whether yeah. high school, college, age, you know, Rico, what advice would you give him after the life that you have lived in the life that you were continuously living every day?
1: Yeah, I love my life now. I love my life now. And and I don't want to be as simplistic as it gets better, because that to me is like a gay white male narrative of like it gets better. <laughs> but um, that's one part is that it gets better. The other thing is that you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Like for Rico in his 20s, it was really hard. I think a lot of us it's hard, but you're you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and sure, it gets better, it gets better, it gets easier and you meet people that you get to have great conversations with you find (laughs) your people you get you find your people
0: you find your people thank you Rico thank you for this conversation thank you Brennan